0: Good to see you guys. Uh, Todd, come up here as well. I have a presentation to make uh, to these two guys on behalf of your church, if that's okay. So what you have here are actually stone plates. So uh, in Nepal, you'll find these everywhere. Uh, a lot of the Tibetan Buddhists they will carve their scriptures on them over time. Uh, but what these plates are, they're made by a friend of mine, a Christian brother, and. Uh, uh, what it says is our vision statement in South Asia. It says, no place left. And the idea that we're after and that your church is joining us in is the idea that there's no place left where the gospel has not gone in these countries. So, Pastor Mike, Todd, right. thank you guys. And thank you, church, as well, for your investment. We'll let these guys put it up on a knick-knack wall someplace. Oh, so, goodness. tell her up their office. Tonight. Thank you. If you've got your Bibles this morning, uh, turn with me, if you would, to the book of revelation chapter seven. And just, uh, as you're turning there, uh, let me continue to tell you, thank you. Um, even this morning, my, uh, my phone started dinging with text messages and when it goes ding, 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 that means a a South Asian brother has just sent me a bunch of pictures and they come in one after another. So this morning I received about 60 plus texts from a young man named Anirud uh, lives in North India. And it was a baptism photo after a baptism photo after a baptism photo. And yesterday means Sunday in India, they saw more than 60 people take baptism right there. And that caps off a, an amazing week. Yeah. Praise the Lord for that. Uh, But in Anirud's area, which is known as the Graveyard of Missions, because there's just a black hole when you look at the statistics in his state. Uh, But in the last week, they've seen well over 120 people take baptism, even in the midst of ongoing lockdowns and uh, those types of things impacting his area. So thank you for your impact with guys like Anirud, with others. You'll hear some stories this morning. Um, but more than anything, just hear me say thank you from the bottom of our heart, okay? Uh, Revelation chapter 7. This particular passage is near and dear to a lot of missionaries, and anytime somebody like me gets the opportunity to speak, we're going to use a passage like this. And uh, typically, when I would address you, we would be talking about different types of statistics. Like in South Asia, we have 1.7 billion people. We have 2,289 different people groups that are unique languages, unique peoples, ones that don't interact with each other on a normal day-by-day basis. These unique peoples that we call people groups, there's an awful lot of them. And if I'm not careful, I can bore you to death with statistics. And uh, before long, all those numbers just kind of get jumbled up together. But this morning, as we start, let me take you on a, a short journey, if I can. Okay, so picture this with me. My, my family and I, we live in Kathmandu, Nepal, the capital of Nepal. Kathmandu is home to about 5 million people. Okay, 5 million people crammed into an area that's roughly about... Uh, What is it, 10 square miles, something like that. Uh, For reference, I was looking at some statistics on Dixon, the city of Dixon. We have 20 square miles that make up Dixon, the city. And uh, I don't think you're quite yet hitting 5 million inside the city limits. Is that right? I think it was 15,000, 16,000, something like that. So our city has a lot of people. And one thing that I've become convinced of over time is that. I need to help you guys understand what it looks like to do missions. So imagine this with me. Imagine waking up in my home on the other side of the world. It's a typical house. We got rock walls and uh, concrete walls. Uh, We got modern conveniences. You would have had a good night's sleep, But somewhere before sunset, the roosters are going to start crowing. You'll hear the chickens. And then you'll hear my neighbor living just across the back wall go ding, 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 ding. And that'll go on for 15, 20 minutes, something like that. And that neighbor is trying to wake up her God so that she can worship that God in the morning. That's very typical of Hindus. Along, Sometime after that, you might hear a, a faint echo of some chanting in the background coming from a Hindu temple located just down the hill from my house. Uh, As you get up you go out on the balcony or go up to the roof, you can see those 10 square miles that make up our city. And you can overlook just house after house and and apartment after apartment. And you can see the hospital and the runway and you can see everything that's in the city. Uh, As you walk out of my house, uh, Probably the first person that we would meet would be a, a neighbor lady of ours. And this neighbor, she, uh, she's quite wealthy, actually. She owns four or five cows, depending on the day. And every day she comes down the hill to a field nearby our house. And she leads those four or five cows to graze in that place. And my wife, Michelle, she has shared with that lady several times. And that older lady, she just laughs and giggles and says, yeah, that's for somebody else. That's not for me. And then turning right out of my driveway, we would probably meet four or five politicians that are out exercising in the morning. Uh, One of them might be my friend Krishna. Uh, Krishna and his buddies in fact, uh, earlier this week, Krishna sent me a text saying, hey, we can get out and go shopping now, but woe is us because there's, there's no economy that's going on. And Krishna and his guys, they're going to talk about the local politics and what's going on and, and uh, just spend that time. Krishna has heard the gospel and uh, he just brushes it aside and turns back to politics every time he hears about it. Uh, from there, we'll go on up the hill. We'll, we'll cross the corner store that we call it. It's a little shop uh, run by a lady and her eight-year-old son. This shop, uh, they sell knickknacks. They sell basic supplies like flour and rice and uh, even chocolates. My kids will go up there and buy chocolates from this lady from time to time. And uh, she and her eight-year-old, they're out there probably playing first thing in the morning. And that lady, she's heard as well, but she responds typically of a lot of ladies in South Asia saying, yeah, I'm not ready to believe until my husband believes. So as soon as he says yes to Jesus, I'll say yes to Jesus as well. And her husband has yet to believe as well. From there, we'll head up the hill. We'll walk past house after house after house. And each of those houses are sitting on property worth a quarter of a million dollars because property is a premium there. And the people there, they might be in a nice house and the next house would be more of a slum. And the house after that, uh, very small, one room, something like that. But from there, we might, we might turn and go down by Oscar's house. We might meet the three Chowdhury girls out for a walk in the morning or something like that. These three girls, they're young girls uh, in their late teens and early 20s. These three girls represent the first generation of Christians uh, from their people group called Taru in southern Nepal. These three girls, their father is actually a pastor in southern Nepal, but he sent them to Kathmandu to get an education. So they might be out even sharing with people that early in the morning. From there, we'll continue down the road, start down the hill to the first intersection. And in that first intersection a couple months ago, there was a a young business guy uh, in his 50s, I think he was, uh, that was actually walking up the hill, made it to that intersection, clutched his chest and fell over. And inside 30 seconds, there was a huge crowd around him, but nobody dared touch the man to even see if he had a pulse. They were all scared of this virus that's out there. In fact, we called two different hospitals that refused to send an ambulance due to the fact that they thought he probably keeled over from COVID. Well, he had a heart attack and the third hospital actually came uh, at the police request and finally picked up the, bo- the body of the man. From there, we'll head down the hill and we'll go by Sunita's house, we'll go by Kieran's house and Akka's and Minoja's and we'll pass house after house. And in that 20 or 30 minute morning walk that we might take from my house, we'll pass 10,000 people. Uh, We'll pass house after house, and each one of them needs to know the gospel. And what I have found, and I think the same would be true for you, I have found that when I talk about numbers, there's nothing behind those numbers usually, if we're not thinking real close. But as we look towards God's word, we want to start by recognizing that lostness has a name and it has a face, And in my neighborhood, I can tell you the names and show you the faces of the people that have yet to know Jesus. In fact, if I took a hypothetical morning walk in your neighborhood with you, I'm sure I could find the same, that you would point out this neighbor who knows Jesus and faithfully comes to church with you. Or the next house where somebody there uh, two generations ago was a believer, but now no more. It's uh, not a good place to go. Or the following neighbor that you've shared with multiple times. Even in your own neighborhood, for you, lostness has a name and it has a face. And this morning, as we begin to think about lostness... Think about those names and those faces. And as we uh, go to God's word, as we think about the lostness that's there in front of us, let's look at Revelation chapter 7. Now, you guys are here Sunday morning. I assume you're the advanced class. You know some things about scripture. So let me ask you two questions about this passage. First question is the easy one. Who wrote the book of Revelation? John. John. The Holy Spirit. Yes. Okay. Somebody went to Sunday school this morning, but the Holy Spirit used John, the apostle of Jesus, the disciple of Jesus to write this book. That was the easy one. How about the harder one? Did John write about things that happened in the past or things that would happen in the future? Yes. Yes. (laughs) Okay. That's a harder question. And we can spend a lot of time looking at the different parts of revelation. What was in the past? What's already happened? What things will come in the future? But this particular passage, Revelation chapter seven, is something that is yet to happen in our future. So John wrote it and he wrote about things that are coming in the future. So if you would read with me, Revelation chapter seven, verses nine and 10. Here's what it says. After this, I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are the one true God that recorded your words for us to read, to study, and to base our lives upon. We pray that today that you would speak to each and every one of us from your word. We trust you and we believe in you and we love you. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen. So Revelation chapter seven, verses nine and 10. This is probably a familiar passage. Anytime a missionary gets up and speaks, we're going to use Matthew 28, the Great Commission. We'll use Matthew 24:14 that we've already read this morning. Or we'll use a passage like Revelation 7:9. This is a, a vision verse for us that we always go back to. In fact, a lot of different mission agencies, including the IMB, would say, this is what God has called us to. In fact, our churches, probably this church included, would go to this passage and say, this is what God is calling us to. It's right and it's healthy for us to look, not just at what do we want to do in our community, but really what is God's word commanding us to do and what is he calling us to do in the future? In fact, on the other side of the world, as we teach passages like this, uh, many of you have heard Charlie and Betty and others talk about uh, foundations, how we equip local pastors on the other side. One of the big pieces of foundations is looking at a timeline. And saying on this side, we have the book of Genesis and God making everything in the world and the story of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and then Moses. And we walk through the kings and the prophets and we get to Jesus. And sometime over here in the future, there's going to be Jesus' second coming. This passage is about this end of the spectrum. In fact, we often teach that here we are in 2020 and over here sometime in the future, there's going to be an end when Jesus returns and that day is coming and we can stand firmly on that promise. In fact, all of time is marching towards God's envision. So if we want to be assured of something, if we want to stand on something solid, we join God and what he's already said is going to happen. And that's why we always come back to this passage. For us, as we look at it this morning, we want to look at three different things from this passage, okay? First thing with me, if you'd recognize this, look there at verse 9, and it talks about uh, how many people will be gathered before the throne. It says, a great multitude that no one could count. You know, in South Asia my side of the world, the countries of India, Nepal, Bhutan, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, the Maldives, and Pakistan, those seven nations uh, have about 1.7 billion people, okay? Billion with a B. That's like uh, a bunch more times than the U.S., okay? Uh, We have a lot of crowds everywhere that we look. In fact, this picture is a picture of what's called the Mela this is a hindu festival that happens about once every 12 years Uh, this particular one they had 120 million people gather at those people gathered over the course of about two months at different times and they all went to the holiest river in india the ganges river and these people they would go there they would dip And when they went under the water, they believe it's washing away all their sins, all the things that they've done wrong in their life. And when they come up, they're cleansed once again. So this particular festival is very important to Hindus. And that's why nearly a 10th of the population of India gathered at this place. 1.2, sorry, 120 million people that were gathered there. It's a huge crowd and they gathered in less than one square mile. You can imagine the crowd that was there that day, that was gathered there. In fact, this is the only uh, grouping of people that astronauts tell us they can see from space. Yes, they can see man-made structures, they can see the Great Wall, yes, they can see cities, yes, they can see all the lights of all the houses at night, that type of thing, but looking for people when the Kumbh Mela is going on, the astronauts can see a massive grouping of people as they look down over North India at this time. Crowds are something that we know something about. In fact, a, a friend of mine talked about crowds in South Asia. And he said his city was the only place he's ever been out for a jog early in the morning and got stuck in traffic. And when I visited him, yes, the cars would have like two inches between them. And if you're jogging in the middle of that traffic and it comes to a stop, you're stuck. Or you're climbing over the hoods. Crowds are something that we know something about. This day in Revelation chapter 7 is all about a crowd, but it's not the Kumela. In fact, this crowd is doing something very different. When we start looking at this crowd, it resonates a lot like the passages that we read about in the rest of Scripture. In fact, it reads like uh, the fulfillment of all the things that God promised Abraham. Remember, I think it was Genesis 15, where God took Abraham outside at night and he said, look up, count the stars in the sky if you can. Your descendants are going to be like the stars in the sky. It's a great multitude. Or a few chapters later, I think it's chapter 32, where he again was telling Abraham, your descendants will be like the sand on the seashore. That many. Well, here at the end of time, there is a great multitude That's there. And that's that great multitude gathering. It's much bigger than the Kumela. In fact, the Kumela, we could number 120 million. This particular crowd, it says nobody could count. And they're all there before the throne of God and they're worshiping the Lamb. That's a great multitude. In fact, these pictures. Uh, from South Asia, they show you some of the crowds that we have that are actually worshiping Jesus. We have churches that are meeting like the one in the upper left, and we have people groups uh, like the Chamar. You see the guy holding the sign. That's an entire new people group that's hearing the gospel there. A new uh, ethnic, ethnic linguistic group that's gathering there. Or the baptism photos of Literally dozens of people waiting for baptism after they've heard the good news of Jesus. We see crowds like that that are there. So think with me as we think through the idea that lostness has a face and it has a name. That lostness, God's plan for that lostness that you're thinking of is for this to happen. For them to join that great multitude that no one could count. That's gathering before the throne. God's plan is marching towards that reality, a great multitude. But it's not just a great multitude. That great multitude is made up of some very specific people. In fact, if we keep reading in verse 9, it says, Before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language. You know, those designations that John records for us there, from the Holy Spirit, They are very specific things. Nations, that's pretty easy for us to wrap our minds around. But then he says tribes. So smaller groupings of people, right? Nations, tribes, peoples, okay? Like people groups, uh, who you want to associate with. Tribes might be like your family. Uh, uh, Peoples would be those that you're friends with. Anybody that can come in and just make themselves at home, that type of thing. And then it even mentions languages, well, in the world today, we have more than 12,000 different unique groupings of people that would fit nations, tribes, peoples, and language. They're more than 12,000 total. In South Asia, those seven nations I mentioned, we have roughly 20% of the entire world's population of people groups. Okay? We have 2,289 unique groupings of people. When we read this verse, we see great hope for those 2,289 different people groups. We are guaranteed that when we get to the end of time that all of time is marching towards, there's going to be a great multitude from the Chamar and from the Lepcha and from the Gurung. And we can go down that list 2,289 times. God promises us that there will be people gathered before his throne at the end of time. That means people who will say yes to Jesus. For me, for my family and our role we have 451 people groups that we are targeting that as of today, we know of zero believers, zero churches, and nobody trying to do anything about it. When I read this verse, I have great hope to engage 451 people groups because I'm guaranteed of success as we walk out of our home every day. I'm guaranteed that God's plan is is marching forward. As we engage that lostness that has a name and has a face, we know and we are guaranteed and we can take this guarantee to the bank, so to speak. You know, as we look around the world, people are going to be gathered before that throne that are rich and they're poor. There'll be people from the first world and from the third world There'll be people that are whites and blacks gathered there. In fact, all of that is marching towards God's plan. Just like that, that Sunday school song that we sing about the little children. How does that go again? Red and yellow, black and white, they are all precious. Innocent. How many of you sung that in Sunday school sometime in the last 50 years? Yeah, most all of us. That song is speaking about this. It's talking about how God loves all the children of the world, but it's not just love. It's actually moving them towards his plan of the restoration of mankind. He wants to see all those people gathered before him. We're guaranteed of that success. And it's truly a great multitude of nations, tribes, peoples, and languages gathered before him. I'm reminded of of these brothers up here. In fact, the, uh, the brother in the upper left-hand corner by the name of Deepak. Uh, Deepak is a, a good friend of mine. In fact, he is probably the most godly man I have ever met. Um, he reads his Bible faithfully. He's done so for 30 years. He, he's pastoring a church and has done so. He hears the voice of the Lord and acts on it. He is somebody who knows scripture through and through and just is a very good level-headed leader on the other side of the world. Uh, A few years ago, uh, Deepak and I, we started working together about, uh, I guess we've been working together a decade. And over the last decade, God has used Deepak and his core team in some amazing ways. They've gone out, they've shared the gospel. As they shared the gospel, they, they see people say yes to Jesus. They start discipling them. They form them together in churches. And we actually see multiple churches start through Deepak and his team of leaders. Uh, after five, six years, something like that. I remember sitting down with Deepak and doing an assessment of the churches that he had seen start. There were about 600 of them that uh, these guys had started. And on one hand, we're praising God. But on the other hand, we start looking at who are you reaching? And every one of those churches was a Hindu background church. They're from a variety of different people groups, two or 300 different people groups that are represented in those 600 churches, and we're celebrating that, but we realize in your area, Deepak, there's 21% of the population that's Muslim background, and we began asking the question, Deepak, what about the Muslims? And he began to tell a story after story about how the Muslims were different than he was or different than the churches that he had seen started and how they needed something that he maybe couldn't provide and as we dug a little bit deeper asking stories about uh, what's god done in your life related to muslims he talked about being bullied by a group of muslim boys in grade school And he talked about how his uncle had actually been killed during partition when a great number of Hindus migrated east and a great number of Muslims migrated west. And uh, several million people trying to cross paths, there were just atrocities committed, murders and rapes and everything else. And he remembers growing up with a deep-rooted hatred for Muslims. And here, this godly man, when we finally got down to it, and I said, Deepak, Why are you not sharing the gospel among Muslims? He confessed, I hate Muslims. And as soon as it came out of his mouth, you could just see the the shame that washed over him because the conviction of the Holy Spirit was there. And as he began to process this and and deal with it, he grabbed his right-hand guy, a guy by the name of Robin, and Deepak and Robin got on a bike that afternoon and went and shared in a Muslim village nearby their place in New Delhi. And When we see the reality of Revelation 7-9 actually set into our hearts like this, we see guys like Deepak respond. And for him that day, he got over some of his prejudice and he said, God loves these people and I need to as well. And even though he knew who they were because lostness had a name and a face and he could remember those bullies from elementary school, he actually had to do something about it. And he got on his bike and that day he left his prejudice behind and he began to take steps forward. Because even those people that we think of that have names and faces, even those that we would count as enemies, God's plan, God's purpose is to move all of history so that even they get the chance to hear the gospel and respond to it. And here in Revelation 7, 9, we're reminded that there's no prejudice by the time we get to the throne, that there are people from every nation, every tribe, every people and language gathered before that throne of God. And we're convinced and we stand firmly on that as we move forward. We can move forward with full confidence that God will do this. But it's not just that. If we keep reading these verses, okay, think about what comes next. If we keep reading verse 9, it says, they were wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hand. And then verse 10, and they cried out in a loud voice. You know, it's not just about what is gathered there. It's not just about the sight. In fact, if we think about John for just a minute, the guy that wrote this down, John was in exile when he's writing this. He's, he's living on a deserted island, probably all by himself. And he's nearing the end of his life, probably 80, 90 years old, something like that. And there he is on a deserted island, probably facing a lot of the same feelings you and I would. He's probably facing loneliness. He's probably wondering, is all this worthwhile? Have I wasted my life? Is, is this really what God has called me to do? But one day on a Sunday, it says in chapter one on the Lord's day, uh, the Holy Spirit spoke to John and not just gave him a prophecy, but actually caught him up that took him somehow into the future. And he saw this. He saw this scene unfold before him. And can you imagine the sight for this guy that's facing loneliness that doesn't know if his life has counted for anything as he looks at this great multitude? That's standing there, they're in white robes, they're waving palm branches back and forth. Can you imagine the encouragement that he gets even from seeing this? And he knows that all of time is moving towards this reality. And it's not just the sight either, but think about the sound. How many of you are hard-hearing? I'm getting older every day. I don't know if anybody else in this room gets older every day or not, but I'm getting hard of hearing day after day. If, if I'm in a room like the gymnasium, I think Todd's class was over there today. If you put three kids in there and they're all talking at the same time, forget it. I can't have a conversation with you because I can't hear. Uh, many of us are hard of hearing the older we get, right? Right. That day in his 80s or 90s, I don't think John was hard of hearing. I don't think there was any confusion as to what was being said. Instead, the sound that's there, he understood it very clearly. And that sound said this Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. For John, it was the sight and the sound working together. And he knew exactly what was happening. He knew that all of God's plan had just become a reality. And he saw the end of time. Man, what encouragement for John. And not just for John, but for you and me too, as we see the same thing that John sees. They're all worshiping the lamb that was slain, the one that paid for our sins so that we could be made right with God once again. What a great sight and sound to behold. You know, as I think about this and as I see it play out on the other side of the world, that lostness that has a name and has a face also has people that are working to do something about it. I'm reminded of of these guys in the upper left-hand corner, Ruth and Bebek. And if you've been to my house, which a number of you from this church have come and visited us in Kathmandu. If you've been to my house, you might have seen Bebek running around. Uh, I met the back four or five years ago, something like that. And I actually hired him after one experience at our local le- electricity office. Uh, that one experience, I went downtown to pay the bill. I think our bill was $20 or something like that for electricity. And uh, walk into the office and there's a line that I've got to stand in to pay the bill. And it took two hours to pay a $20 bill. And after that, I was like, this is for the birds. I got to do something else. Long behold, this young guy comes by the house. His name's Bebek. And I say, hey, Bebek, would you like a job? And we got to discussing and he said, what's the job? Well, running errands for me, which means going and standing in lines and paying bills and picking this up and getting that and those sorts of things. And the guy saves me a ton of time uh, just by doing those sorts of things. So over the last few years, Bebek running these errands for me, we've gotten to spend some good time together. We do Bible study. Uh, Little by little, the Lord's really grown him. And when I met him, Bebek in his early 20s was uh, similar to how I was in my early 20s. Uh, Every day he had to make the decision. Do I do what I'm supposed to do in my job or do I go play indoor soccer downtown with my friends? And some days he chose indoor soccer and some days we had conversations afterwards about what are your responsibilities and things like that. Uh, other times, uh, it seemed like the guy was trading motorcycles. Every other day he had a new bike that he was borrowing from this friend or he would bought this one and sold that one, that type of thing. And he, he was just obsessed with it. In fact, he had two or three or four wrecks, something like that, because in his early 20s, driving a little too fast, doing things he probably shouldn't have, showing off for his friends. Uh, can anybody relate to anybody like that? Uh, just me okay sorry but uh Bebek in his early 20s was facing those types of things he and Ruth had been married and uh they're working through what does it look like to be married all those sorts of things well about a year year and a half ago the lord really got a hold of Bebek and uh something clicked in his life and he decided it was time to become the man of his family so that's what he did he he stopped doing all the indoor soccer things and uh bought a scooter which is not manly at all, but it's very functional where he is and uh, those sorts of things. And he got real about his faith and started coming out with us and sharing the gospel alongside a number of us. Well, he got to see a couple of people come to faith and that really excited him. And he started sharing boldly with others. And uh, about a year ago, I think uh, he led this young guy to faith. And I said, "Okay, what's next? But and he said, we need to baptize him. Yeah, you're right. We need to baptize him. And he said, well, you baptize him. I said, me, why? You led him to faith. And we had a long discussion with him and his pastor about what does it mean to actually give somebody else baptism. And he faced a lot of uh, authority issues from his church, from his leader. And uh, finally, he worked through all of those and he baptized his first guy about a year ago. And he's never looked back since. And Babek is growing as a disciple maker day by day. Well, on October 23rd, the country of Nepal went into full lockdown, like you can't leave your house type lockdown. Uh, Bebek knows the right people though, and he's able to get a pass. So just before that, we had seen Priya and Sanjay come to faith and Bebek had shared with them. So as lockdown happens and we're not allowed to leave our house, Bebek is the only guy that can go and start discipling Priya and Sanjay. And he and Ruth go together week after week and before long, it's not Priya and Sanjay alone, But there's a small group of believers gathering around him. And six months ago, Bebek saw the first church start uh, that he was actually able to be a part of. Not bad for a 25-year-old kid that runs errands for me for his job, that type of thing. And little by little, we see guys like Bebek and Ruth and others like them continue to grow in their faith. And they are the ones that are joining us left and right in actually leading those lost people who have names and faces to faith in Jesus. And we see some of those types of churches up here on this slide. And each of those churches will be there at the end of time, right there next to you, next to me. And they're going to be singing and crying out. And they're going to be shouting, salvation belongs to the Lamb of God, just like this entire multitude is doing. And as we see those things happen, we see an amazing thing unfold in Scripture. We see all of God's plan leading to that that grand end vision that he has, the vision of the end, right? So as we look at this passage this morning as a church, what do we do with this? Is it just encouragement, something to put in the back of our mind and say, oh, that's nice and go about our life? I would actually say that God's end vision is actually calling all of us to join it in that plan as well. Uh, Do we have any bankers in the house? If I guaranteed you could get 100% return on investment by this time next year. Uh, Would you take that bet? Would anybody take that bet? Guaranteed, not, not just a preacher's word, but actually this is going to happen for sure. How many of us would actually put money in the bank on that? I would think that would be a very sure thing. Revelation 7, 9 is that sure of a thing. It's not a It's not a prophecy. It's not even a promise from God that we can stake our life on. But instead, this is a vision that a man named John has already seen. And it's already a reality. It's just a matter of time until our reality catches up with God's reality. And if that's not paradoxical, I don't know what is, right? But all of time is moving towards this reality. So as a church, as we think about how we put this into practice... I want to draw your attention to something I've learned about over the last few years with First Baptist Church. Uh, I've learned in the 1970s, First Baptist sent out a number of missionaries around the world. Okay, Uh, we have them up there. We have uh, uh, Claudia and Steve Hall. That were sent out as missionaries, uh, musicians actually, to South America. Or we have Charlie and Betty Hawkins, whom many of you know. Uh, they were bookstore managers in the Philippines. Or we can go down the list to Patsy and Don Meyer, uh, who were doctors in Africa. Or Margie and John uh, Tarpley, I think. Tarpley, thank you. Uh, in fact, even this morning, I learned of another one that I'd missed named Edith Porter. Uh, these five young people in the 1970s through discipleship of this church were commissioned and sent uh, to four different continents around the world. This church, First Baptist Church, has a long legacy of sending missionaries. These are just some examples of the impact that this church has had. In fact, as I was asking Betty about this earlier today, she mentioned Delma Hardin-Smith. And Delma Hardin-Smith was a Uh, A believer from this church that faithfully did what then was known as Young Women's Association, YWA, which later became known as Acteens, which today we'd probably call youth group or something like that. But Delma Harden-Smith, she was one of those faithful ladies that took time to pour into the next generation and disciple them. And Betty credited Delma Harden-Smith as the one that poured into her life and these other young ladies' lives that then went out and changed the world. As we start looking at what God is doing (coughs) around the world, First Baptist Church has a long legacy. And that legacy has continued from the 70s through the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, right up until today. And that legacy from yesteryear is something to be celebrated and not to be forgotten by any means. But I'm convinced God doesn't want us to live in yesteryear, but he's calling us to move forward. And that moving forward is leading towards Revelation 7, 9. He's calling all of us to make a difference. He's asking us to get involved somehow. Getting involved could take a a lot of different uh, looks. It could look a lot of different ways to a lot of different people. Typically, we always go back to the same three things, prayer, giving and going. And up here on the screen, you can see some ways to connect personally with us. We would love that. We'd welcome that. We have always got newsletters. I'd love to include you on our newsletter list, or we can talk about projects and what the church is already doing by, by giving to support the work in South Asia. And we thank you for that. But this morning, I want to take just a minute to camp out on the going piece. In the 1970s, this church sent out five missionaries that impacted nations around the world. They were actually a part of leading those people that are now represented before the throne of God. I would suggest today in our church, it's time for God to call out the next generation of missionaries to come and join us someplace around the world whether that's right here in Dixon or a different city in the US or as far away as Nepal or North India, I don't know what the case is, but I'm convinced God is calling people from this church to join us in seeing his envision vision become a reality. And that applies not just to the next five young people that wanna raise their hand and move 10,000 miles away, but it includes the folks like Delma Hardin Smith, and folks that are pouring into our children and teaching Sunday school faithfully and giving as different people are going on short-term mission trips around the world. God is calling us to make a difference, and he's calling us uh, to get involved now. In fact, this morning, I want to end with a video, and this is a video about a South Asian guy whose life was impacted and now showing the ripple effect of everything that God's done through him. so take a look at this video with me if you would. VJ concludes with, "Now is the time, now is your turn." And that's my call for this church. Now is the time, now is your turn to get involved, with what God is doing as he leads towards his envision of Revelation 7:9.